welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Brian Bradley with me here today. Brian, I really appreciate you joining me as we talk about asset protection. And I know this is going to be a riveting topic for most people because when we get into this type of thing, Bradley, I think a lot of people's eyes glaze over. Do you experience that? I actually don't because the way I talk about it is different. So I try to make it an enjoyable talk about it. And at the end of the day, like, you know, if you're listening to these type of shows, you're trying to increase your finances, your financial IQ and hunt down some financial freedom, right? So at the end of the day, you need to protect it to make sure no one takes it from you the best that you can. So it's actually an important topic. So it's one of those things where you start, when you start making money, you realize how important it is to learn about taxes and you actually want to learn about it. And you actually then when you start learning about how do we keep our stuff. So if you want to learn more about what Brian and his team are up to, I'm going to send everybody to your website, Brian. So head over to btblegal.com. That's going to be a clickable link in the show notes. But Brian, I was hoping that we could start things off by kind of explaining a little bit about what asset protection is, because I think there's some confusion regarding asset protection, what you're referring to, and maybe something to save on, simply save on taxes. Yeah, yeah, it's a great starting point. And so asset protection isn't traditional estate planning. It's modern estate planning. And what we're doing is placing a legal barrier between your assets like your rental properties and the potential creditor, um, you know, the person suing you to collect, you know, your money and take your assets from you before it's needed. And this is really a big keyword. It, it, it has to be done before you're down that rabbit hole. It's just a barrier, like a safe for your gold or your guns or your valuables. And so anything of value you want to put behind the legal barrier and out of your personal name so that it's not easily attached with a lien or reached, you know, just like the rich. And I love this Tony Robbins saying, success leaves clues. The rich don't own things in their personal names, their businesses and their trust do. They just get the beneficial use and enjoyment out of them while separating out the liability side of it. But it's not hiding money or moving assets to not pay or avoid paying taxes. And I get this call a lot, you know, that's illegal. You're taxed on your worldwide income, you know, if you're a US resident. And I think we can get into this maybe a little bit later if you wanted more in the detail, or I can do it now. But, you know, tax havens is fraud, but it needs to be discussed because I get this call so much. So I'm not sure if you want me to like kind of like jump into like real quick, just like tax havens, or we can save it for the end. Yeah, no, why don't you, since you brought it up now, why not now? Yeah. So, you know, to piggyback off of it, thinking that asset protection means not paying taxes and, you know, moving and hiding assets so that you lower your taxes and not pay them at all. That's just illegal and it's tax fraud. And that's when people go to jail. And I can break down with the, you know, with the talk on fraud or fraudulent transfer, but I think that's a, a completely different type of, you know, topic. But tax mitigation is legal. It's done with your CPA and your wealth managers 
by using the tax code and different investment types and creating different investment accounts like self-directed 401ks or other strategies. That's legal. That's legally using the tax code as a treasure map. Now, asset protection is about limiting liability of risk from lawsuits and creditors coming after your assets and your money. It's not about hiding or moving assets to avoid paying and um, disclosing your assets. What we need to understand is that you know, offshore asset protection planning will not reduce your taxes. And you're going to hear me talk probably about you know, offshore trust later on. So this is where it's really important to understand when you start hearing about some of these scams of offshore. If someone is telling you this, it's a scam. It, this is why we do not use, for example, like the Caymans or Belize or the Bahamas. They're all red flagged. And the scam works by a promoter, sometimes an attorney or a CPA, trying to sell that idea that, you know, air quotes, if you don't have your money in the U.S., then you don't have to pay or owe any taxes on it until you bring it back to the U.S. So just don't bring it back to the U.S. The fact is that the IRS taxes you on worldwide income, plain and simple. It does not matter where you earn your money. You know, if you're a U.S. citizen and, you know, you're a U.S. taxpayer and you owe the taxes and you have to disclose it. The problem with this scam is that when the IRS takes you know look at your plan, your, your asset protection plan, it's not it's not that it's only going to protect you, but it, it it may leave you with a massive tax bill if you're putting all this money offshore. And then the IRS comes back after you're going to have to owe all that money back in taxes, or you go to jail for that. The bottom line is that asset protection planning and tax planning don't go together. It's like oil and water. Anyone promising to help you legally evade paying taxes using any offshore entity is almost certainly lying to you. And if you're involved in a scheme like this, you know, whether you got duped into it, you know, or you did it intentionally, it's just going to be a matter of time before you go down. And, you know, like, in fact, the IRS, they're very clear on this. And the IRS has this on their website. They have a page dedicated to identifying abusive tax evasion schemes. And so the IRS specifically lists trust being used to reduce income taxes through abusive techniques that aren't allowed by the IRS code. And just a few of these, just so you guys get kind of like a, a quick understanding, is you know unreported income, avoiding filing returns, failing to report overseas wiring income, attempting to protect transactions through bank secrecy laws, you know, in these tax haven countries, and, and even more. So just be wise when you start hearing about people talking about offshore entities, just realize if they're trying to promise you these offshore entities to avoid paying taxes, just hang up the phone. Hmm. You know, that that's good to hear because I think there's, you know, we, at one point, one of my rapid fire questions was, could you give me a real estate investing myth you'd like to bust here today? I think that is probably one of the top of the list because you do hear what you're suggesting quite a bit. Yeah, you do. And it's sad. And then, I mean, I think we're going to break a lot of myths today. You know, like one of them, I think we're going to dive deep into, you know, LLCs and how LLCs are used, but the cons of LLCs. And and that then brings on the need of why we have to layer up our protection, you know, which when we start breaking down, you know, you know, asset protection actually structures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, why don't we go there? Because I was going to ask you about that because you do have an interesting thought regarding the untold truths of LLCs. Yeah. And so I think a great starting point for this is just understanding like, you know, 
what are the tools that we use? You know, these key concepts for asset protection. And then we can kind of like break down pros and cons and, and, and myth bust. Okay. And so the tools are what we first talked about, layer one LLCs. And then we have limited partnerships from management companies and then asset protection trust. And we're going to break these down kind of like through stories and case law. And I want your, you and your audience to think about wintertime. When it comes to asset protection, we have different layers. Just like when we're going outside in the cold and it's winter, we put on different layers of clothing. The first entry layer when we're just starting out is that base layer. It sits on your skin. This is the LLC, the limited liability company, and generally insurance. This is when you're just starting out investing and you're going to have probably like zero to three units or properties. Your total exposed net worth is going to be generally $250,000 or below. And then as you grow and you're adding more layers, you're adding more units, you're going to start graduating to the next layer, which is a limited partnership. Or think of it like a Moreno wool sweater or a Carnegie for you ladies. It's going to be a management company. Some people use Wyoming LLCs. We generally use limited partnerships. And this is going to be kind of when you're around that $500,000 to $700,000 net exposed net worth. And then when you get to around that million-dollar net level, or maybe you're a doctor, you know, you're a surgeon, you have some kind of also a high risk profession. This is when we use that water shell outer, you know, water waterproof layer that, you know, the outer shell jacket. This is going to keep you nice and dry and warm when the weather is really bad. That's your doomsday lawsuit protection. That's your asset protection trust and really specifically a hybrid trust, which we'll explain, you know, a little bit later. But by layering, you're now more flexible. You can adjust and make yourself more comfortable. So when clients call in, we really know that you're looking for four things. You're looking for effectiveness. You're looking for, you know, be able to control your plan and your assets. The costs are going to need to be reasonable. And you got to be able to stay in IRS compliance. And so the idea is, as we build an asset protection plan, we want to be able to hit little check marks on all four of those. And not everything is always going to be able to hit a check mark. And so it's a matter of how we layer them and how we start constructing this as you grow. So the first layer, right? LLCs, base layer, asset protection 101. Most people are familiar with these LLCs holding real estate and risky assets. And so anything that's risky, you know what? It has a key. You need to get insurance on it or it can go boom. They all go into LLCs. How many? It's just going to depend on your profile and what you have. And so I think we know all, you know, we've heard enough of people talk about LLCs, but we haven't heard about people talking about the cons or the misconceptions of LLCs related to how effective are they in actually limiting, you know, liability when you're getting sued. And so the first problem generally is that most clients have single member LLCs all in their personal name. Generally, they're created by your CPA when you're just starting out. The problem here is that courts now have a tendency to disregard single member LLCs. So when your corporate veil is pierced, it's not very effective. What being disregarded means is that the IRS is not taxing your business separate from you. It passes through to you personally. And because of this, they're basically worthless for asset protection and lawsuit issues. But don't get me wrong. Like, I don't want to scare people off from like, well, I'm just not going to use an LLC. We still use LLCs, but we use them at the very bottom base layer. And then as you start growing, we start adding more than necessary layers that you're going to hear me talk about later on. The second really big problem with LLCs is just a lot of confusion on where to even set these LLCs up in. Do you go to Delaware? Do you go to Wyoming, Texas, Nevada, Arizona? You hear this all over the place. 
Well, it really just comes down to an issue of just what are you holding and where are you holding it at? So, you know, this is a real estate show, right? We're talking about, and a lot of people are investing in real estate. So let's say, for example, it's California real estate that you own. And you're going to hear me pick on California a lot, just because a lot of people live there. A lot of people have to start investing out of the state. And generally what you see happen in California, you start seeing happen throughout the rest of the country. All right. And so you're, you know, on this California real estate, you're a California resident, and then you go and set up a Wyoming LLC. And then you go and hold a key piece of California real estate in this Wyoming LLC. And now you're paying the California franchise tax on this out-of-state Wyoming LLC. What you've done is just convert your Wyoming LLC to a California LLC because you've done business in the state of California. You're paying the franchise tax in California. But if you ever have a liability issue in California, meaning a lawsuit, you know the judge in California is going to apply California law, not Wyoming law. And this is demonstrated in a recent 2023 Supreme Court case named Mallory versus Nor- Norfolk, or Norfolk, sorry, Mallory versus Norfolk, where the Supreme Court upheld a Pennsylvania statute that forces companies uh, to face litigation within the borders that it, that LLC is registered to do business in. And so this case now opens up the door for other states to start adopting similar registration requirements. So state courts are permitted to exercise jurisdiction over the registered foreign corporations just as if they were domesticated corporations of that state. And you're legally required to record those out-of-state LLCs known as foreign entities and pay the franchise tax. And so a judge in California or any other state, they don't care that your LLC is a Wyoming registered LLC. What they care is that it's doing business in California or the state that you're living in and that it's registered to do business in. You know, you can't just go and take Wyoming or Delaware tort and damage and personal injury laws with you to other states. So though you thought you did yourself a favor by setting up this Wyoming or Delaware LLC for your rental properties, in reality, you really didn't. You can't just go buy and purchase another state's better laws. So for assets that are real estate, I recommend using the state that the real estate is located in because you're not gaining anything by using another state. You're just doubling your maintenance cost. And sadly, what people are are, are falling, you know, failing to realize is just that real estate is different. And they confuse business law and contract law with tort and personal injury liability. And this is a really important point for people to understand. When we're setting up a business, right, you and I, we want to go and start selling widgets. And so we're going to create contracts. We can and should include choice of law clauses and venue provisions. You know, we see these in every contract saying what state a potential claim or dispute can be brought in. But, you know, we see what happens. We really need to see what happens down the line with Norfolk case for this, you know, even with business. But when we're setting up a business to sell widgets or a product in a different state, we can incorporate in Nevada or Delaware or Wyoming or you know any of those good charging order protection states and use those states as a choice of law clause in the venue provisions to govern air quotes here. And this is really important. That's going to govern the internal disputes and affairs of the business. So like you and I fighting internally between the business or dissolving business, it's going to govern the internal disputes and affairs. But again, when it comes to real estate and LLCs acting as holding companies for the rental property, that's not a business. When a person gets injured on your rental property and sues your LLC or you for damages due to wrongful doings or negligence, that's not a business dispute, but a tort liability. You know, we're talking about wrongful acts and infringements on rights. So 
Cases like tort liabilities do not relate to internal affairs or corporate governance matters. And so, you know, they are seen as outside the entity. So you're not, you don't have that corporate veil protection. And there's really no litmus test that exists to tell if your corporate veil is going to be pierced. It's really determined on a case-by-case basis. But there's a seminal case on veil piercing, you know, and again, it's a California case as Associate Vendors Incorporated versus Auckland Meat Company in 1962. And they laid out about 20 reasons for justifying how to pierce your veil. And here's the top five. And I'm pretty sure like all your listeners are going to understand how important these top five are and how bad they're messing up and how bad their veils can be pierced. One, commingling of funds or other assets, using funds for something other than corporate use, failure to maintain adequate corporate records and you know confusing of the records, the use of the corporation as just a mere shell, so an extension of yourself, undercapitalization. And those are just five. And I'm pretty sure most of your listeners can probably be like, I'm probably doing three of those. Hmm. So just to remind everybody, it is btblegal.com. That is a clickable link in the show notes. And if you've heard something that Brian has rung in your ears so far, I want you to share this episode with another real estate investing pal. Well, Brian, so... I'd like to ask your opinion on something then, because based on what you've said, I'm guessing this strategy really doesn't hold water. The fact that I've heard of nesting essentially your your LLCs. You would have LLCs in each of the states you have properties in and then have a, a controlling LLC in Wyoming and the like. Does that provide any additional protection or is that kind of a waste of time? That's a good question. You want to you have the LLC set up in the state that they're at. So let's say we have five properties, you know, one in Florida, one in Tennessee, one in California. The LLCs at the base layer, they're all going to be set up in those states. Then the big difference is blowing up the chart now to the second layer, the Carnegie layer, the sweater layer. We need a management company, okay? One of the benefits of it is all those K1s, whether it's a Wyoming LLC or a limited partnership, will flow into that management company. So it's just one tax filing. It helps you out. And it kind of gives you a nice accounting system. Where we disagree with using Wyoming is limited partnerships are just better at the end of the day as a management company. That's why you see most syndicators using limited partnerships or you're seeing big investors using limited partnerships versus Wyoming LLCs. There's just more that we can do with them. Just the statutory way that limited partnerships are set up where they by statute, distinguish the managing members from the owner, where we want that separation and that that legal distinction is by statute why limitation limited partnerships are designed that way. You can try to mimic that with an LLC with operating agreements. The problem is it opens you up for fraud arguments because those operating agreements have to be submitted to a judge and it's up to a judge to decide if he agrees with your operating agreement or not. And that's a very scary place to be. So it's, here's my homework, your honor, like, please, please, please agree with me. Please, please, please agree with me. And judges can always wield their superpower of public policy and just decide on whatever they want. So I'd much rather use more statutory approved method of holding you know, a management company. And then we can start putting in more assets like your stock, your stock portfolio, your cryptocurrencies, cash, stocks, bonds, intellectual property, like all non-risky assets we can now put into that limited partnership and start protecting everything. And by distinguishing the managing portion of a limited partnership from the ownership, ideally what we want is to get your passive protection trust to actually own the limited partnership and you just manage the assets. Okay. 
so then that trust is that final step where you're you're putting every putting that the control into that trust. Yeah. So the final layer, you know, that bad weather outer shell, outer shell waterproof layer is the asset protection trust. It's kind of where you're working towards. That's where your goal should be. It's the heart and soul of the system. Trusts have been the longest lasting entities of all entities for holding assets. And when they're done right, they're just very strong and they can be sculpted and molded to fit how you need them. They can morph without, you know, funding issues that you see with LLCs and, you know, how a lot of business entities get pierced. So I just love trust. And it just depends then on picking the proper jurisdiction to come into play. And so a big misconception here is people think of trust as all grump, you know, lumped into one category. Well, I have a revocable living trust. I'm good to go. I have one of those. Think about trust like Baskin Robbins, right? Trust come in lots of different flavors and types, just like there's lots of different flavors and types of ice cream. The standard 101 trust that everybody's familiar with, you know, came from the 60s. It's, it's that revocable living trust, the family trust. Then we have a category is called land trust, which you probably, are, you know, people are familiar with on these type of investment shows, people talking about land trust and LLCs. Land trust, you know, hold your land and you connect them to an LLC. But land trusts don't have any protection in and of themselves. They're only as strong as the LLC that they are connected to. And we already talked about how weak LLCs really are, right? First word, first letter, limited. Straight up, they tell you this in it. So land trusts are just a privacy mechanism. They're not a protection mechanism. And then from there, you now have higher levels of trust. And these are called asset protection trusts. And there's really three types of asset protection trusts. They're either offshore, onshore, or you can combine them together for a hybrid trust. And what a asset protection trust really is, is they are a self-settled spendthrift trust. So this means they're created for you, by you, as your own beneficiary. This lets you protect your assets while you're actually living from creditors and not having to relinquish control of your assets. So the difference is they allow you to protect the assets, not just for you know like your grandkids for passing them on, but for yourself which you weren't allowed to do in the past, you know, with just the revocable living trust. And a lot of you are probably somewhat familiar with another type of self-settled trust, that revocable living trust you heard me talk about. You know, many of you have them, your family members have them. They're the same in that they're self-settled, meaning they're created for you. The difference is that with an asset protection version of this trust, it includes these critical provisions called spendthrift provisions. And what spendthrift provisions are is they are the provisions that allow you to protect your assets from creditors. You know, they're the actual teeth behind the trust. And then for those to work, the trust now has to be not revocable, right? Like revocable living trust, it could be changed, but irrevocable. So it's a very different type of trust, just like chocolate and vanilla. A lot of people get confused on this concept of irrevocability, but it's pretty simple to understand. Irrevocable means that any action, once it's done, cannot be undone. So for example, once you jump off a bridge, you're off. There's no coming back. Um, There's no undoing it and going back up unless you have a bungee cord. Now, when it comes to the legal world, the term has more nuanced interpretation, especially with irrevocable trust. So a starting point, so as a starting point here, you know, creating an irrevocable trust is just like jumping off a bridge. Once it's created, you can't revoke it. Its purpose and its terms are fixed and no changes are going to be allowed. But that's not actually always the case. It is possible to create a trust that's irrevocable, meaning that you cannot revoke the trust itself, but 
it still leaves room and flexibility for its terms, including who the beneficiaries are, to be to be reshaped. And so what we're doing is attaching a bungee cord to that specific provision of the trust so that we can then modify it later on. This is just known as flexible irrevocability, and the courts are completely fine with this. Hmm. I know this might be a kind of a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The, the ones that we run into a lot is, you know, especially in my market, we run into older couples that have their personal house in a trust. Yeah, like a revocable living trust, a family trust. That's what that's what it, it actually is. Yeah. So the, the issue with that is great for avoiding probate, is great for, you know, avoiding death taxes. It, it, there's no asset protection in it whatsoever. And so that's the problem. They're not designed to, so they can't protect your assets. So what you really want is to have both. You have an asset protection trust, preferably a hybrid trust, which if we have time, we can break that down. But you have your asset protection trust holding the primary home. The family trust, the revocable living trust is referenced and named in the asset protection trust. So really, you want all your assets protected while you're living from people suing you. And then you want your revocable living trust with your medical directives, financial directives, the beneficiaries, but it's not holding any assets. It's just there in place for when you do pass. Now we can avoid probate. We can avoid, you know, we get the benefits of the revocable living trust. So you need to marry the two together. So, you know, one of those things that's always eluded me is then you have these, all of these entities set up, you have the trust and then the limited partnership and, and the LLCs. How do you inject capital to each of these and how does the money flow in order to keep everything alive? Yeah. So generally, so the LLCs are just holding the real estate. That's the whole nature of a holding company. It doesn't do business. It's just holding your real estate like basket holding an egg. And then that is then disregarded and owned by your management company, whether it's a limited partnership or a Wyoming LLC. Cash flow, your cash will go into a business bank account generally connected to the management company. And then you're just going to be have a nice clean accounting system that comes in and is ledgering and tagging what money is coming in and from what source and where's this coming out to you putting in personal money. So you're just actually cleaning up your financial life. And the one Mm -hmm. thing that you really need to understand is when you're getting sued, one of the biggest ways of piercing a veil is just having really, really poor accounting books. And so when you create asset protection, one of the benefits that it does is it makes you really become organized in your financial life And one of the biggest expenses in litigation is hiring forensic accountants to have to backtrack all of this. And that's generally going to drain all of your money to fight. Hmm. The other question would be then is that at what point can you, is there anything that has to be done with, with the bank or mortgages or anything there when you're protecting your, let's say you, you decide to put your house or your home into a, into a trust for protection. Yeah. Is so there anything question, that no. has to be changed? No, we just transfer title. So your primary residence would go strictly into a trust. Like you would transfer the title, like go into USD, transfer title from, you know, your personal name into the name of your revocable living trust. The same principle would apply when you're transferring it into your asset protection trust. You would just pay the county transfer fee. Generally nominal, unless you're living in Florida or Pennsylvania. When you're transferring rental properties from your personal name into the LLC, a lot of people get concerned about, well, what happens if the due on sale clause gets, you know, called? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, can it happen? Sure, anything can happen. 
the likelihood of it and no one's ever heard of it happening just because you transfer your your rental property into your LLC. And generally banks like that because of the assets being protected if you do get sued. So we just transfer the property directly into the LLC. We don't even involve the bank. You're still going to have the mortgage in your personal name. Keep paying your mortgage. If you don't pay your mortgage, yeah, you're going to have your note called and you're going to be foreclosed on, not because of the transfer, but because you just stopped paying your mortgage. If a bank were to go through and pull every closed file off of a performing note, the banks aren't going to go through and start pulling every piece of real estate off to say, hey, here's a performing note. Let's come in down and hunt down a reason to find it a way to turn this performing note into a non-performing note to then foreclose on the property. They don't want to own your real estate. They just want to collect your payment, your premium payments. You know, you're the, you're, you're not the last person or the first person to mention the due on sale clause. It's, it's one of those things that just constantly is brought up and, and it's constantly hanging out there. And I hear a lot of naysayers bringing it up, but I've yet to hear any example where something like that was triggered. We, so we have, I have to manage hundreds of attorneys throughout the nation. And we've been doing this for, uh, you know, about 30 years at very high levels, managing billions worth of real estate. We can't ever find the case where that happened. And none of my affiliates can find the case where it happened. I think it became a fear over the last few years where you hear promoters coming on and talking about buy a land trust because if you put the property into a land trust, then it's protected and then they can't do the do on sales clause. So it became a marketing tactic to upsell people on land trust when they really don't need a land trust. Well, just to remind everybody, it is btblegal.com. I would really recommend everybody checking out your website if they have more questions or thoughts on this. Good news is that Brian has a book coming out. And when this episode's released, hopefully it will be available or soon to be. So again, it is btblegal.com. Really appreciate your time here, Brian. Before I let you go, I do have some rapid fire questions for you. Yeah, let's do it. What lie do real estate investors tell themselves and others? Yeah, I think a, a big lie that real estate investors, I'm going to do air quote investors because I'm going to say it's probably like the newbie, the greenhorn is they need more information. I can't, I need more, I need more. And they get stuck in this analysis paralysis. And so like eventually like you're just going to learn by doing and don't expect yourself not to fail. So eventually, you know, you're going to have to just dump in the deep end of the pool, kick, swing your arms around, kick your legs and realize like, well, I know how to tread water and float. So let, let's just swim. Mm-hmm. Do you have a book recommendation or what are you reading right now? A book or a good book recommendation. One of my favorites for investing is I like the Rich Dad Poor Dad series. I like his cash flow quadrant. I like his second book better than the first one. So I would say if you want, yeah, I actually like that one book better than Rich Dad as well. He he really dives down more into his principles, and you you learn a lot more. And he basically rewrites the first book and then breaks it down into more detail in the second one. So I, I would say pick that one up. And then I've been reading a lot of like Grant Hancock books. Like I'm just a big book nerd. And so I've been really interested in the Younger Dryas era. So like you guys should just look that up. You know, I don't want to spoil any of it, but it goes down to, you know, humanity's existence, maybe going back another like, what, 6,200 years. So it's really interesting. Okay. What is one tool you can't live without, whether it's in your personal life or business? 
<laughs> I don't know if it's a tool. Like I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed about jujitsu. So like, I, <laughs> so I, I do like fit, fitness is important. And then, you know, like, you know, I probably like, you like my eyes a little puffy from last night's practice getting, you know, an elbow with the gi across my face, uh, which I just noticed when I went on the camera here, I was like, Oh, my eyes a little puffy right now. Yeah. Well, um, you might so, recruit me to this. I, I've, this my my son is is a teenager and i was thinking about maybe starting something like that with him yeah uh, that's a great bonding experience and it feels that that need for men to you know compete in the camaraderie and the social life and it's going to keep you in shape but functional shape because you're always moving around you're either going to love it or you're going to hate it like there's there's no middle ground. You're gonna realize like, man, having a sweaty dude on top of me, like really compressing and smashing me down, like this is awesome. I need to learn this magic. Or you're gonna say, that's not for me. <laughs> In under sixty seconds, you are going to give everybody one piece of advice that they can implement today. What would it be? Act. Like really, really simple. You can listen. You can analyze. You can do everything. But at the end of the day, if you don't actually act upon anything, then what's the point of all of your knowledge and reading and comprehension and what you're doing? So, you know, same thing. If you're trying to do it for self help or like in, in you know investments or whatever, the next step is just act on it. And lastly, if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? take a deep breath. Like I'm always constantly driven and just go, 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 go. So I would say, you know, how the younger version of me just have a little bit more clarity before jumping off the cliff, you know, like I'm still going to act and go, but you know, you don't always have to jump right at that second. Sure. Well, Brian, is there a question or concept you wish we would have covered here tonight? No, I think, you know, we can always come back another time and break down, you know, like the three different types of trust. But, you know, I, that would be like a whole nother, you know, probably episode length worth of time. Yeah, I would love that. Again, it is btblegal.com. Thanks again, Brian. This was great. Absolutely. Thank you. If you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing, if so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.